Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. It is not unheard of for large numbers of seabirds to die off and for their bodies to wash up on shore. These massive die-offs on the Pacific coast used to happen every decade or so. But a new study from the University of Washington found that climate change is making these events much more likely. In fact, they happened in five consecutive years from 2014 to 2019. Millions of dead birds washed up on beaches stretching from California to Alaska. Julia Parrish is a marine biologist at the University of Washington and a co-author of this new study. She joins us now with more. Welcome to Think Out Loud. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. What exactly motivated this particular study? <laughs> That's a great question, right? It's it's kind of morbid and geeky all at the same time. Millions of dead birds uh, washing up on beaches. Um, you know, the start of this study uh, came many decades ago when um, when I was wondering, as a seabird biologist, whether or not Uh, birds that wash ashore with the tide, um, who've died at sea, uh, can tell us something about the health of the marine ecosystem. And turns out they can. Uh, And that was the start of a citizen science program called COAST, which you mentioned, the Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team. And uh, COAST and I have grown up together over the last few decades uh, involving, gosh, thousands of coastal residents in Oregon and also uh, California and Washington and Alaska in going out monthly and just seeing what's on local beaches and then rolling all that data up into uh, larger scale science stories. And this is our latest one and also our largest one. Am I right that part of what motivated this was that individual citizen scientists or beachcombers with training and and some rigor attached to their to, to what they were paying attention to, they started noticing a, an increase in the number of die-off events. Uh, actually, they uh, they certainly notice when there uh, there are die-off events because a beach that you walk once a month with your your coast partner who who might be your life partner, might be your kids or a coworker or a best female friend, um, family member. Uh, you, you notice when there's a lot more carcasses out there. And when that happens, of course, people uh, call into us, but they also send us the data. But what's more interesting to me is people noticed when there were fewer carcasses than normal, right? When there was a lull, uh, a quiet winter, uh, and no carcasses coming ashore. And that actually was one tip-off for us that started us uh, down the rabbit hole of science um, that that ended in this paper. Why? Uh, Why why is it that that an absence of what I would think of as bad news would have been something that people would be so attuned to. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, And so, 
you know, people who go out on the beach, just like people who walk in a, a state park or a national park regularly, um, people who go up uh, hiking uh, on Mount Hood, they are going to notice um, where uh, natural events happen, when and where the wildflowers are blooming. And if you're on the beach, you're going to notice what what comes in on the tide, when there's kelp uh, rolled up on the beach, when there are uh, beach birds, when you might see marine mammals. Uh, and so they get a, uh, a sort of annual calendar or picture. Sometimes we call that an almanac. Um, and they come to expect uh, what they're going to see when. And when they don't see it, then they wonder what's going on. Uh, so a lot of something can be bad, but the absence of something can also be bad. And in this particular case, that's because normally when we see carcasses floating ashore, they're telling us that the system is actually in balance. For instance, after the breeding season, uh, particularly in northern Oregon um, and going down uh, to uh, Yaquina Head, uh, we'll see lots of common murs. They're sort of seabirds that look like they're wearing a tuxedo um, come washing in. And that's because there's been a, they've just finished breeding. Um, and there's lots and lots of MERS breeding along the coast of Oregon. In fact, more than a million of them. And so there's just lots of chicks in the water and there are lots of parents that pushed it a little too far. So coasters in Oregon come to expect MERS washing in about August, September, um, on into October. And if they don't see them, they wonder, well, what's going on? Is that because the MERS never came? Is that because the MERS had a bad breeding season? Uh, so sometimes that staged mortality, a little bit of mortality can actually signal to us things are okay. Hmm. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, n until until you explain it, that that I mean, but it also it's a it's a sobering fact, and just yeah. that 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 in sometimes massive die-offs are a part, a natural part of of enormous ecosystem cycles. Um, so, what did you learn when you looked at this aggregated citizen collected data spanning three decades? Yeah. Well, w one thing that we found, which we we thought was the case, but this paper nails it, we found that when the surface of the ocean is warmer than normal, right? So we have the climatology or the long-term normal of the sea surface temperature, and we keep that now by satellite. Uh, and so we can tell when the ocean is warmer than normal and how long uh, that that phenomena persists and how intense it is. Is it just a degree above normal? Is it two? Is it three? Uh, more than that. So when the sea surface temperature off our coast is persistently warm for about six months or more, um, and more than a degree above long-term normal, we know now with certainty that we're gonna see a mass mortality event. So this is not just the normal mortality that we see after breeding. This is something that's at least five times the maximum that we've seen. This goes from tens of thousands of birds stretched over the entire coastline of the Pacific Northwest to hundreds of thousands of birds. So that's a that's a big jump, that's a, that's a big change. Uh, and so what we know is that when the temperature goes up a degree or so above long-term normal stays that way. We call that a marine heat wave. Uh, and when it stays that way, we're going to get a big die-off of birds about one to six months after that starts. And then we're going to get another one 
about 10 to 16 months later. So that's already a one and a half year long event. And then after that, we're going to get a lull. We're going to get no birds washing up. And that's when we think the system is recuperating, building those populations that died in the first 16 months back. And that that's really interesting to us, that there's a pattern that lasts almost three years. And it's it is repeated over and over again when we have heating events. What is your so, theory for the mechanism there, for, for what's happening yeah. in both of those die-offs? The, the initial one following the that marine heat wave, and then the, the mm-hmm. second ripple that happens more than a year later. That is great. That's a great term, the second ripple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that from you. Um, well, the first event we think, uh, first and second event are brought on by the same phenomena. That is a loss of food uh, to these seabirds. So the, uh, the first event is sometimes smaller seabirds, things that are eating, oh, small shrimp things we call krill, or even zooplankton, uh, sort of the insects of the sea, um, things smaller than krill. And, and so they'll feel the effects of this bottom-up shift in the ecosystem, which is ultimately resulting in less food available to top predators in the system, including seabirds and marine mammals and big fish like salmon, or pollock or cod or halibut. So these marine heat waves that really change the coastal ecosystem, change the flow of energy through the ecosystem, have consequences not just for seabirds, but for all top predators in the system. I mean, so it sounds like what you're talking about is mass starvation. I am. That's you got it. That's exactly what I'm what I'm talking about. Yeah. Huh. And and that's the same reason more than a year later? Uh, well, it takes a while to get up through the system, right? So the birds that are eating relatively low on the food chain are going to experience that first. And the birds that are eating higher on the food chain, for instance, they're uh, feeding on small fish, they're going to um, feel that as a, as a delayed onset. So that kind of one-two punch is as you said, those ripples that are going through the system. Are some species of seabirds particularly sensitive to increases in ocean temperature? I mean, have you noticed when you look at all this data that that some species or families of species are more likely to die in the the climate change-induced marine heat waves? Yeah, that that's a really astute question. We actually find that that is true. So there's a group of birds, very, very prevalent in Oregon, called the alcids. Sometimes they're referred to as the ox. So let me give you some examples of members of that group. The common murres are members of that group. So are tufted puffins. So are pigeon guillemots and rhinoceros auklets. Uh, and Casson's auklets, and then, of course, the endangered marbled merlet is also part of that group. And we have certainly found, particularly in the lower 48, that when we see these marine heat waves, that that group of birds, that family of birds, appears to uh, be the ones that are the most affected. If you just tune in—oh, sorry, I, I, please, please go on. 
what's interesting about those birds is they're all the deep diving birds. So they can dive maybe a football field to several football fields. So anywhere on the coastal shelf that a, a big old king salmon um, or silver salmon can go, these birds can go. Some of these birds can dive 300 yards under the surface of the ocean. Isn't that amazing? It's extraordinary. They are scrappy. Yeah. When I when Absolutely. I go four feet down, uh, my head hurts. <laughs> uh, I should remind folks, if you're just tuning in, uh, we are talking about the climate change-induced increase in massive seabird die-offs. Julia Parrish is a marine biologist at the University of Washington and a co-author of a new study about these die-offs. We've been talking about the focus of your research, which is uh, the Northwest Coast, the, the Pacific Coast, going down into California and going well up in, into Alaska. But obviously, we're also, this is just a part of a, of a global ocean warming. Uh, is there data to support sort of similar findings in other coasts around the world? Oh, that is a great question. We do have a huge amount of data from the Pacific Northwest and Alaska, and that is in part because we have a set of citizen science programs. So Coast is one of them, but it's not the only one. We have two sister programs, Beachcombers and Beach Watch, south of us in California. And then we have a sister program in British Columbia called British Columbia Beachbird Survey. So those four programs working together, collecting data in the same way, um, have a, a really good lock on what's going on um, in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. Elsewhere in the world, there are uh, beach bird programs, but they're not as large uh, in space. And so we we know that uh, in some other places in the world where you've got the, the intersection of super, super productive cold, cold coastal water uh, with upwelling like we have here in the Pacific Northwest and lots of seabirds, um, that we do see this phenomena when there's a marine heat wave that birds die off. So a good example of that is the coast of uh, South America, uh, particularly uh, Peru. And different birds that nest there, but similar phenomena that when the water warms for a long period of time, El Nino is their um, water warming phenomena. Uh, they'll see die offs of both seabirds and marine mammals. So echoing what we see here in the Pacific Northwest, but they don't have the um, citizen program on the beaches. So they've been unable to quantify that to the degree that we have. So we have both the phenomena and we have a really robust citizen science program to go out and get those data. Because honestly, you know, as a scientist, even at a university, there's, I have no hope for collecting those data through normal mainstream science um, pathways. I rely on the coastal citizens in dozens of communities all up and down the coast to do that work and to also just tell me what they see on beyond the data collection. They're really my eyes and ears um, about what's going on. In the time that you've been doing your work, have you seen a change in the, the way that fellow scientists, people with PhDs and, and maybe a, a natural belief based on many, many years of education and training 
that, that they know best how to collect data and how to do science. Have you seen a change in, in the way trained scientists think about citizen collected data? Yeah, I actually have. Um, and it's, uh, it's wonderful. So I, I think that the kind of work that I do, citizen science, where I'm developing a, a protocol, a way of collecting data, a, a set of directions, and I'm going out uh, in community and um, inviting people to trainings and training them up uh, on doing that, you know, I'm connecting to something they're already doing, in this case, walking the beach. And that kind of data collection can be very, very powerful because everybody who's participating in the program is doing it the same way. And there are several examples uh, of that, um, not only beach birds, all kinds of things, weather, extreme events, uh, the amount of snow at altitude, the um, spring and fall migrations of songbirds, all sorts of um, different things have citizen science programs developed around them. And what we're finding in mainstream science is that that kind of data, where we have lots and lots and lots and lots of data points. I mean, we have currently right now, Coast has about 500 different beaches that are being monitored, and that's huge. So, so that level of data we can only, only get by uh, partnering with people, right? We don't tell them what to do. We partner with them because as much as they're following our protocol, they're also giving us their observations about other things that are going on. And that really helps us understand the system. So it's really a partnership between, in my case, coastal citizens and or coastal residents and uh, scientists to figure out what's the normal pattern, what are the changes from it, What's creating those changes? And what's the future look like given those changes are happening? Well, so let's, let's a, turn back to that future just before yeah. we say goodbye, because I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, to the extent that this is even knowable now, how yeah. much these different bird populations are bouncing back from these massive die-offs, the, the increased die-offs, and how much their populations um, could simply dwindle because they they don't have the numbers to actually come back from these declines. Yeah, that's a that's the you know, you've hit the nub of it, right? That that is the sobering question that is provoked by this study. And you started this segment by telling people that it used to be that we had a, a large mass mortality event, our largest category, category four, think of that like a big, big hurricane, um, about once a decade. But now we've switched to one a year, 2014 through 2019. And that continues on in Alaska um, up into um, 2021 and 22. And so when we see very large scale untoward mortality that's happening so frequently, what that tells us, given what we now know about this double ripple plus a lull, um, it takes time for the system to reset itself. There's not enough time. So what we see the system doing now is just setting a lower bar, if you will, for the number of seabirds that can be supported. And that means that we are going to see some losers in the system. Um, some species where we'll see far fewer 
than we saw. Some species that won't be able to hang on because they're at low levels to begin with. I think we are facing a world with fewer seabirds. And that means by extension, fewer other top predators as well, fewer marine mammals, and quite possibly fewer commercially important fish. Julia Parrish, thanks very much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Julia Parrish is a marine biologist at the University of Washington and a co-author of this new study about the increase in massive seabird die-offs, an increase directly related to climate change. Think Out Loud and all of OPB's reporting in our communities are made possible by the support of our members. Do your part to help make it happen. Become a sustaining member now at opb.org pod.